0: Hear now the word of God from Hebrews 11:23 through 29. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned.
1: Would you um, remain standing, and uh, we're going to pray, and then also just keep your Bibles open because we're going to, we're just going to walk through the text and learn about it. So this has be great. Um, let's pray. Father, um, thank you for uh, fathers. Thank you. Uh, The beauty of um, our fathers and the love that they extend is um, just an appetizer of what we have for you. And so we praise you and thank you. Lord, we would ask uh, by your spirit uh, that you would illumine these words. Uh, We want to know you. Uh, We want to change. We want to grow. We want to be something tomorrow more than what we were today. And so if you would be so kind to soften our hearts and um, teach us to see that we might know Jesus and grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, um, several years ago now, a movie came out. It was called In Darkness. It's one of those movies that um, wasn't like in the main movie theaters, it's more like uh, those, uh, what do you call like fine, fine arts theaters? Is that a thing here? I don't, is that a thing? I don't know. Uh, it was where I come from, but <laughs> so it's kind of artsy. Uh, it's a movie called In Darkness. It's based on a book called The Sewers of L'Veuvre by Robert Marshall, and the plot of the movie follows the heroic efforts of this guy named Leopold Soka, who cares for a group of Jews. So 1943, the Nazi Germany's had occupied the city in Western Poland called Lwów. And during that time, of course, you know the Nazis had sent thousands upon thousands of Jews to extermination camps. Uh, roughly 20 Jews were able to evade capture. Leopold Soka, a believer in Christ, put his own life at stake by personally taking care of these Jewish refugees by hiding them in the city sewer system. So for 14 months, these Jews were living in the filth of the sewers, always in darkness, and they were exposed to filth, rats, disease, and human excrement, and daily. Leopold Soka would leave the comfort and the safety of his home and enter the disgusting sewers to bring food and water to the people who were in hiding. And and, and not only was he risking his life by entering into the sewers, a place that not even Nazis would go, but he was risking his life by identifying with the Jews and caring for them. This heroic story, is, it's amazing, and the, and the courage this man plays is even more amazing. He preferred to be identified and mistreated with the Jews than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures that, would give, that were afforded to him by his loyalty to the Nazis. You know, when I hear stories like this, like, it really inspires me. I mean, how did this guy do it? You know, would I have done it? you know, just such virtue. How did he have the courage to stand with the Jews and to stand against the Nazis when it, when it would cost him everything? What did this man believe? And stories like this, like, man, they inspire me to live boldly. And I just, like, I want to encourage, like, everyone should be reading biographies. Like, just, like, get out of your world and into the eyes of someone else to see people who live faithfully. They, inspirational stories have a way of working on us. They shape us. And that's what, that is the trick of, if he, of Hebrews chapter 11. There are a bunch of biographies, you know, like Twitter version biographies. They're short, but that's what they are. They, they're, they're offering us these inspirational stories of people who were willing to take great risks to follow God. That's, that is all of Hebrews chapter 11. And so Moses who we just heard about today, is like Leopold Soka, Or Leopold Sokka is like Moses, maybe we should say it. But Moses put his life at stake by choosing to leave, to leave the riches of Pharaoh's court and going to the sewers and identifying with the oppressed people, the slaves, the Israelites, you see. And why did Moses do it? Where did he find the courage to live that life. How did he persevere with so much to lose? I mean, incredible spiritual endurance, right? So by studying the faith of Moses this morning, we're going to see the aspects of his faith that, uh, that helped him to do it. I'm convinced, and, and listen, man, y'all, like, this is like what we need today. Like, we need this for today. Uh, we live in a disposable society. Like, nothing endures. Everything in our world seems dispensable. We, we throw away our cups and our plates when they get dirty. Uh, we get rid of boyfriends and girlfriends when they stop making us happy. We dispose of our identity when we want to fit into a different group, right? Like nothing endures in this culture. We live in a throwaway culture. And I am afraid that maybe this is true for Christians too, People will, will make a sincere commitment to the Lord, but when they're challenged with serious consequences for living out their faith, like, like giving up an opportunity to make good money or giving up an opportunity to get married with someone who doesn't maybe share a faith, it's in those moments we'll dispose of our faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus becomes dispensable. And I've seen this so many times with people I really care about. So our passage today is going to help us endure. It's going to give us courage, even when there's this extreme pressure to just maintain the status quo and just dispose of our faith. So to do this, we're going to, we're going to study three elements of um, Moses' faith in the face of seduction to walk away from God. Uh, Moses demonstrates three things. This will be the outline of our sermon. He shows us a greater fear, a greater pleasure, and a greater wealth. So a greater fear, pleasure, wealth. And with that, let's jump into the first one, a greater fear. Now, with a touch of irony in our text, the author begins by describing not Moses' faith, but the faith of Moses' parents, right? <laughs> Did you notice that? And uh, so let me just, uh, word of exhortation, let me just start there. Uh, Parents, uh, what you do matters. Don't you dare. Don't you dare live a lukewarm life and then expect your children to live something different. Or the same thing, you know, to live any differently than you, right? Because our children, like their radar is super dialed in. They can discern when we're fakes. And in fact, children tend to live an exaggerated form of our faith, right? So if we're lukewarm in our faith, if we're cultural Christians, our kids are going to be the next exaggeration of that. They'll be ice cold. This is what they are. That's how it works. Our children, as they're growing up, they're borrowing our confidence in the Lord. And how confident are we in the Lord? What is it that they're borrowing? Now, here's what I want you to hear. If your children exhibit a greater faith than you do, and some of you just have little children, but you know, so many times I, you know, I'm meeting these college kids who are on fire for Jesus, and they're like, yeah, I didn't learn this growing up. So I, I didn't grow up in a home that talked about any of this stuff, right? They're, they're discovering Jesus, not because of their parents, but in spite of them. But if your children love Jesus more than you, you fall on your knees and you give thanks. What a gift. Maybe even learn something from from these children. All right. Look what it says, verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So here's the context. A lot of context is going on today, so heads up. So a new pharaoh had come into power in Egypt, and because the Israelites had grown significantly in number, he was was growing afraid of them, and so he began to oppress them, and he even had the firstborn of every Israelite family murdered. So Moses' parents hid him for three months. Eventually, they were caught. But even still, they refused to obey the pharaoh. So instead of killing the child, Moses Parents put him in a basket, sent him down the river, and the daughter of Pharaoh found this baby and adopted him. So, listen: by not killing the baby, the parents were putting their own life into jeopardy. So, in that culture, a person didn't just simply defy the king, because the king is under—like the Pharaoh was understood as a god himself, right? You don't just defy the the king and then, like, get away with it without any consequences. So why did they do it? And here's why. They knew there was a God in Egypt, and the Pharaoh wasn't him. I mean, perhaps it's not safe to defy Pharaoh, but it is much more dangerous to defy God. They knew that one day they would stand before the creator of the universe. And they feared Pharaoh, but they feared God even more. You see, they had a greater fear. This reminds me of Martin Luther. I I don't know, a little history moment, but so Martin Luther was this Catholic priest, grew up very disappointed with all of like um, the abuses that were going on in the church. It's like the 16th century. Uh, Back then... Protestants didn't exist. That wasn't even a thing. Only the Catholic Church existed. And so Luther is a priest, but he's also a scholar of the Bible, and he knew that the church was not obeying the Bible. And so what he wanted to do was just restore the church back to its biblical purity before kind of all the politics got involved, right? So, for instance, the church at the time was selling indulgences. I don't know if you know what that is. They're certificates that a person could buy to get you or your loved one into heaven. Sounds a little bit crazy, but the church made a lot of money uh, by it. And so Luther began to speak against it and uh, other abuses. Well, as you might imagine... The clergy in the Catholic Church did not like that because it threatened uh, their political power and their financial standing. And so Luther was imprisoned for this teaching. And they were threatening to excommunicate him. So he's put on trial. You can read about this. But he's put on trial at this thing called the Diet of Worms. And he was apprehended, and he was, um, they, they, were go- they were going to punish him as a heretic. So he's summoned before this great council. Emperor Charles V is in the audience, right? The greatest person in the world at the time. And there's this immense power or pressure for him to uh, to like recant. So the whole church is against him and and just years earlier this guy named John Huss is like he's killed, right? Burned at the stake for the same views. A lot of pressure. So he's asked to recant of these teachings against the abuses in the church. I just want to read for you just two sentences of what he says at this council. Luther says, unless I am convinced by scriptures and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Now, did you catch it? Like Luther's very career, his life is at stake. He's on the edge of death for his commitment to the Lord. And when they ask him to recant, he says it's not safe to recant. Like it's not safe to contradict the Lord. Because I'm like, really? Because that knife that's going to come down on your head is not safe either. He's like, it's not safe to contradict the Lord. See, like, to Luther, the assembly was dangerous, but God was far more dangerous. He had a greater fear. Y'all see that? And because he feared God more than he feared the clergy, he was able to live courageously. Why do I mention this? Listen, everyone, I'm not, like, I'm not trying to scare you. God is not grumpy, Right? That's not the case at all, but he's real. That's what I want you to hear, but he is real. He's more real than anything you can touch or see, and one day we're gonna see him. Like, really, you'll see him face to face. And it is dangerous to live in this world as if God doesn't exist, right? You're you're taking your life into your own hands to live in that false reality. And on the final day, we're not gonna have to live by faith, and that day's coming, and, and it's going to last forever. And to the extent that your heart can grasp that eternal reality of God right now is to the degree you will organize your present life, this life right now, in preparation for that reunion. God is not grumpy, but he's real. He's the creator of all things, and we were made for him and for his glory. So a healthy fear of the Lord, listen, a healthy fear of the Lord will manage our earthly fears. You see, puts them in the right order. When we have a greater fear of the Lord, we'll we'll lose this impulse to treat God as if he's disposable. That's the only way we can do this. All right, let's move to our second point. That was a greater fear, now a greater pleasure. So in this passage, the author is moving very quickly through the life of Moses from episode to episode. It's happening fast, so you gotta know the background. So look at verse 24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so he's no longer a baby, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. All right. So here's the story. So Moses grew up as a prince. Now he knows that he's a Jew, but he's also an adopted prince, and he's entitled to all of the riches of Pharaoh. And so he doesn't have to do anything for the rest of his life. This is like a a trust fund kid. You know what I mean? Like, he's kind of set. He's rich. He's safe. He's comfortable. Well, one day, he's out and about. And he sees this Egyptian taskmaster being harsh to one of the Jews. And in a moment of rage, like he loses himself and Moses kills this Egyptian. Now, he hides the body because he do not want anyone to know. Then one day he comes upon, another day he's out about, sees these two Israelites fighting with each other. And the one who's culpable, he says to him, he's, this is in Exodus 2, he says, um, Why do you strike your companion? And the guy says back, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Exposed. Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So like Moses realizes something. He had lost the respect of his own people. And so now there's even more pressure to identify with Pharaoh. I mean, because Moses could have gone back to Pharaoh, asked for forgiveness. I mean, killing a working class guy is a big deal, but not that big of a deal. Not when you're a prince. It happened in those days, right? But, verse 24, by refusing to, call, but re, by refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses was choosing the hardest path, right? So what did, what did he do? Verse 25, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God, people who didn't even respect him, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why did he do it? Moses had a greater pleasure. A greater pleasure. So Moses wanted maximum pleasure, and he knew that the greatest pleasure would not come from the fleeting pleasures of sin, but rather from this eternal relationship with God. Having a greater pleasure in the Lord, you see, is what empowered Moses to persevere and endure. Now here's how this works. You you might have heard uh, in Tim Keller's books, he makes this, or maybe you've heard it from James K. Smith, Uh, They're all citing this guy named Thomas Oden, theologian philosopher from Oden, from Drew University. They're probably all quoting St. Augustine if we can all just full disclosure, but here we are. This is what he says. He says, you um, are only as durable as the thing you love or pleasure the most, right? And and, and he says, um, he, he makes like observations about the human heart. He says, first of all, the human heart, is naturally goal-oriented, all right? Second, he observes that goals in our heart compete against each other. They compete for prominence. They compete for importance. And then lastly, he concludes that each person ultimately has to choose one goal as the center of value by which other goals are measured, right? So what's the point? If you choose a finite center of value, that is, if you choose something finite which gives you the most joy or pleasure, then you will always be anxious. And that anxiety becomes neurotically intensified as as things come under attack. I mean, think about your health. Think about your figure. Think about your body. Think about your career. Think about your bank account. Think about your political party. Whatever it is, it's under attack. And if you find ultimate pleasure in those things, then you can be controlled very easily because you are as solid as the object that you find ultimate pleasure in. But if you find ultimate pleasure in the Lord, you'll realize that nothing puts him or your joy in jeopardy. It's steady. It will endure. And you can too. You too. But if you find ultimate significance and pleasure in being married or sexual pleasure or success, then you will be at the mercy of those things. And you'll do anything to protect it. You'll never be courageous. You will slavishly protect those earthly pleasures. And when anything threatens it or critiques it, you'll be super touchy. Are you touchy? You'll be super touchy. You'll never do courageous things. You'll, you'll run back to Pharaoh, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean? You might come to church, but you will leave if a greater opportunity to advance your life and that thing in your heart presents itself. You'll, and you'll never, you'll never identify with people who are also mistreated. I mean, you'll identify with people who are like you, who look like you, who are comfortable like you, who are rich like you. You will not want to stare into the eyes of a person who does not look like you because even their presence silently critiques you And it critiques the thing that you find ultimate pleasure in. Y'all see how that works? By finding ultimate pleasure in this world, you are condemning yourself to a safe, touchy life. Like Moses, you guys, we've got to find a greater pleasure in Christ more than we find in anything else in this world. And your heart will be neurotic and restless until you do. Until you do. All right, let's move on to our third point. How are we doing? All right. So we've looked at a greater fear and a greater pleasure. Let's look at a greater wealth. So I mentioned earlier, Moses was entitled, trust fund kid, right? To a life of wealth of proportions that are really kind of difficult for us to comprehend. Pharaoh is like, I don't know, the Jeff Bezos or the Bill Gates of the Middle Eastern world. Uh, in an interview just uh, like several years ago, a reporter was with Bill Gates and, and, and the reporter kind of astounded by the money. Like it's like Monopoly money. It's like so much, you know? He's like, uh, do you understand like how much money you have? And, uh, you know, Bill Gates responds by saying, I don't think about it that way. I just know, this is what he says, and I quote, I just know that I can have whatever I want. That's what Bill Gates says. That is actually what life was like for Moses. He just have whatever he wants. I mean, he could have whatever he wanted. So why in the world, like, why would he leave all of that? I mean, was he crazy, y'all? Was he crazy? Like, what? Can I suggest to you he's not crazy at all? Moses made a careful calculation of the rewards and treasures in the court of Pharaoh and realized that following Christ, he would ultimately be rewarded with riches far greater than anything you could find in a million Egypts. Look at verse 26. Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for which he was looking to the reward. And then the story continues. Look at chapter 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And then it continues. Look at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. All right. So these verses are describing the courage that Moses had to lead Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Y'all you all remember the story? All right, let me just, if you haven't watched Prince of Egypt in a while, let me just uh, summary here. So Moses demanded that Pharaoh let his people go. Y'all remember let my people go? Okay, all right. No, I'm not gonna sing any songs for us, but after 10 plagues, Pharaoh changes his mind and he even sent them away with this immense amount of riches and wealth of Egypt. So as Israel's leaving, Pharaoh like flips back, changes his mind again, and he decides to send his army to chase Israel and to kill them, like kill them all, exterminate them all. So Israel gets trapped, right? In front of Israel is this vast, deep body of water. It's the Red Sea. And behind them, is the most powerful army the world had ever seen today, right? And so what does Moses do? Man, he marches them straight into the water. In Spanish, we would say like, que pantalones, which translate the dude had pants. I don't know why we say it like that, but he had pants. Like, what the what? Like, he clearly was not afraid of the king's uh, uh, the king's armies, or sharks, for that matter. <laughs> I don't know. Are there sharks in the Red Sea? I don't know. I'm talking trash now. But okay, you see what I'm saying? Like, so he's, got, he's in. He's steady. And sure enough, the waters didn't wash him away. And the Lord opened up the sea because the text says, why did He says, verse 27, Moses saw him who is invisible. Y'all see that in verse 27? What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, I don't know what all it means. Maybe it means something like what the psalmist sings in Psalm 16 when he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. You see the correlation between allowing the eyes of your heart to see the Lord and that with not being shaken or said positively, being steady? Because here's what happens. When your eyes are fixed on the Lord, it helps you to truly appraise wealth, right? It helps you to understand what, what makes someone truly rich. That's what Moses did. He forsook the wealth of Pharaoh because he wanted a greater wealth. You know, Jesus, during his ministry, he would go around from town to town teaching on the kingdom and he would teach principally um, through parables And he tells us one parable. It's a one-verse parable on the kingdom. He says this. You'll recognize it. This is in Matthew 13, verse 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Y'all remember that one-verse parable? Now... The primary way to interpret that is that man in the field, that's Jesus. Like, he finds you and thinks you're of supreme value, that he sells everything, gives up even his own life to have you. That's the primary way to understand that parable. But there's a secondary way, a second rollout of that. It's showing that life with Jesus is a superior treasure that we should give up everything, right? But do not miss the point. The parable demonstrates the concept of a greater wealth. See, the person finds the treasure, but what he realizes is that what he found is actually greater than all of his possessions put together. And, and so he's making a really good business deal. <laughs> right? He is not losing his wealth. He's gaining it. The wealth of that treasure far surpasses everything he already has. And for that reason, with great joy, he goes off and sells everything. That's why we keep repeating this refrain from Jim Elliot, that he is really no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what happened to Moses. That's what made his faith great Moses had a greater wealth. If the invisible God is real, then what Moses did is the smartest thing he could ever do. And by fixing his eyes on him who is invisible, he was able to persevere. He endured. He did not give up. He was not seduced into quitting and living a life of the status quo. For Moses... Jesus wasn't disposable, you see. He was the greatest of all great treasures. There's no quitting for Moses because through faith in Christ, he found a greater fear, a greater pleasure, and a greater wealth than anything that this world could offer. And that's what we have to understand for our faith to not become disposable. All right, so let me land this plane by offering just a few closing reflections on verse 28. You'll notice I skipped 28 there, note takers. Uh, actually, let me do something. Let me just make, uh, can I just share my thoughts on the book of Hebrews? Um, Hebrews, we've been in there for a couple months. It's like really hard, isn't it? It's really, really intense. The author speaks with a really stark, strong language, There's so many strong warnings. The author is like a a trainer working with this boxer, and he keeps like yelling at the boxer. Like, why are you yelling at him? And um, he's like yelling, get tough, get tough, get tough. And like Hebrews is kind of like that, just telling us to get tough, get tough. (laughs) And you're like, "Uh, quit screaming at me. Um, Some of you need this. Some of you kind of need to be woken up. you just comfortable Christianity. Dutiful. Some of you need to be woken up, and so these warnings are helpful, but not all of you. Some of you um, are tender, and really, you just feel a little bit guilty. I mean, you look at your life and you wish you had more faith. You wish your faith was stronger. You, ser- you sincerely want to live a courageous Lord- life for the Lord, but it's hard. Life is hard. And yet you want to break out of the status quo, but you don't know how to. And listen, oh, you guys, I do not want to manipulate you with guilt. That's not what's going on here at all. Please don't hear that. Here's just my one recommendation for you. Just change one thing. Right? Don't, don't think too big. Don't move to Africa and work in the slums just to prove that you're really courageous. Don't do that. No one's asking you to do that. Start small. If you have this besetting sin that you're a little bit embarrassed about, maybe no, courage would just be telling one friend, a safe friend. Be known. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. If you don't tithe, maybe you have this weird relationship with your money. And you don't give 10%, maybe give 3%. Maybe, maybe start there. Like, just see how it goes. Maybe you don't read the Bible regularly. It's hard. You just, it's collecting dust. Try just reading it for five minutes, twice a week. Start small. Five minutes. If you have a problem with discontentment, and everyone around you who loves you just knows you're touchy but never happy everyone sees it, and you realize that you're touchy and discontent all the time, nothing's enough for you, maybe you could just memorize one verse, like 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Maybe memorizing one short verse is what you need. Maybe that's the one thing. Here's my my point, you guys. Take small steps, don't try to conquer the world This is a community that's we want to be there for each other. We don't want no one's judgy. No one's judging you. We just want to grow. Take small steps. Because even Moses, this guy who we're studying, who's in the hall of faith, he needed to learn faith too. He did. He didn't start at let my people go. He didn't start by jumping into the Red Sea. He was in Midian, the desert. 40 years. Homie was working at it for 40 years before he had the pantalones to write the pants to go to Pharaoh. He took small steps. He needed time to grow. We need time to grow and our children. So let me finish with one detail from our text to just encourage us. This is verse 28. Look there. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So when Moses returned from the desert to confront Moses, with God's power, he sent 10 plagues to convince the stubborn heart of Pharaoh. All right? And each of these plagues were targeted at the, the so-called gods of Egypt, And at convincing the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, but not the last one. Not the last one. The last plague would bring harm to even the Israelites if they didn't practice their faith. So the tenth plague required that every family, not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites, slay a lamb, take the blood, and put it over their doorposts. So that when the destroyer, this angel of the Lord would come, he would pass over those families, the ones that were marked with the blood of the lamb. And so, for the families that did not practice their faith, the angel, the destroyer, would kill the firstborn, but everyone. So, all the Israelites practiced their faith and they used, listen to me, they used the blood of the lamb to identify their loyalty to the Lord. Guess what? That's what we're doing here. We're still doing that. The blood of the lamb. Do you remember the words of John the Baptist like when he first laid eyes on Jesus? He's like, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb. It's gonna be his blood that protects me. Y'all, this is what is so amazing about Christianity. Jesus, our Lord, was like a better Moses, man. He, He leaves the riches of heaven, chooses to go into the sewers, to be mistreated, suffer with us, to be identified with us. And so, that when God the Father, who is perfectly just and holy, threatens to treat us according to our sins, something happens. What is it? What is it that happens? He passes over us because we are marked with the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the first and only Son of God, and He was the slain. Lamb, the sacrificial one. This is reason enough to fight for faith, to fight for it, to raise our children into this, to believe it, to live big lives. Jesus is better, Jesus is superior. In Christ, DPC, we have a greater fear, a greater pleasure a greater wealth than anything in this fleeting world. Would you believe that with me this morning? Would you believe that with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, every time we ask for faith, you are so kind by your spirit to do to do it, to give us faith, and we need it. Oh, we need it, Lord. And Lord, I just recognize that all, Uh, there are people here, we're all in a different place. And some of us need to be woken up. And some of us need to um, be comforted and to be reminded of the blood of the lamb. But for all of us, man, we need you bad, Lord. We need you real bad. Because even on our best day, we're just embers. We could be snuffed out. But Lord, don't let it be. Don't let it be the case. Protect us. Fill us. Give us new endurance. Give us courage to pray over our children, to pray over our friends, to be prayed over. Teach us to lay hold of the invisible one. You our God who loves us and gave his own son for us. We pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.